Greetings. This is Phil St. Romain. Thank you for tuning in to my Awaken podcast channel. This message is on theosis, which refers to our transformation in Christ. It's from a lecture I presented in October 2010 to a spiritual formation class at Heartland Center for Spirituality in Great Bend, Kansas. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe to the Awaken channel so you will receive updates on future offerings. Also, if you would like to support this ministry with a tax-deductible donation, please visit the payment link on my website, shalomplace.com. That's S-H-A-L-O-M-P-L-A-C-E dot com. And now, our podcast. Now, a few terms as we get started. Uh, first one, salvation. And uh, salvation as redemption, deliverance from evil or harm. In Christianity, be beginning a new life in God is usually what is emphasized. Salvation is something that God makes possible. We can't save ourselves from evil, from the devil. That's a big question for many now. Is uh, You go preaching salvation and say, salvation from what? There's not a sense of guilt about being in sin. There's not a belief in the devil, except as an interesting character in some movies, exorcism movies and whatnot. So people are not as in touch, I think, in this day and age with a need to be saved. And preachers who go out preaching that message, you know, don't find a welcome reception like they might have a hundred years ago, for example. But still, that's the understanding of salvation is something that God makes possible to save us from an evil, a depth of sin that we cannot extricate ourselves from using our own human power and intelligence. Conversion, to turn one's life around, away from sin toward God, to repent of the old and be open to the new. Conversion signifies what we must do. It's our part, that, that we have to make decisions. We have to turn our lives around. We have to say yes to God. We have to make changes in our lifestyle. And theosis, that term means literally deification. Actually, the literal translation, theo, is, uh, is refers to God and osis to process. So you might say it refers to our God process, would be one way of understanding it. Some similar words, words that express this concept uh, that are used in different Christian traditions, one of the most common, sanctification. It's ongoing conversion leading to transformation by grace. Spiritual development is another term that is often used, spiritual transformation. You see the difference between theosis and salvation. Some some uh, Christian Groups emphasize salvation, but don't say much about a transformation. To be saved is enough. And even though transformation continues to take place, there's not a whole lot of emphasis on it. Obviously, you can't have theosis unless you have some kind of conversion, some kind of ongoing commitment to cooperate with the grace of God for transformation. Okay? A few quotes on theosis. 
Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. And you'll have to hear these quotes as a whole. Some of them are, are direct, but uh, I mean, they, they refer directly to it. But this fullness of life doesn't just happen in an instance where we say yes to God. It's a lived process through our whole life. And that's a very positive statement from Jesus, isn't it? Fullness of life. That life being life in God, the life that he came to bring us. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ. You could park on that one. You have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So the invitation is to live in the fullness of Christ, who came to bring us life to the full. For this is why the Word became man, and the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that man, by entering into communion with the Word, and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God, Irenaeus of Leon's uh, second century Christianity. Or to put it simply, God became man that man might become God. Not God by nature, God by participation, God by grace is what they mean here. It's not like we're going to wake up and say, oh, holy smoke, I'm God. I just didn't know it. Uh, deep down inside, I'm God. Why didn't anybody tell me that? No, it's, it's more by participation. And there's a quote from uh, Peter right here that I think expresses it very explicitly. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who also called us by his own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us everything. Okay? Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. This participation in the divine nature is at the heart of the understanding of theosis or spiritual transformation that developed through the, uh, the centuries. But there it is in very early Christianity being, being referred to. The only begotten Son of God wanting us to be partakers of his divinity assumed our human nature so that having become man, he might make men gods. St. Thomas Aquinas, of course from the Catholic tradition, but expressing a position that was already very well established. He wasn't making this stuff up. You can see the echo with Irenaeus in second century Christianity, partakers of his divinity. That's again the essential nuance from Easternish and New Age theologies, which maintain that what we're what we're after is discovering a kind of an inner divinity. Uh, participation means that it is something that God shares with us. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. That this theosis wasn't just in the spiritual part of our nature. It overflows into the psychological part of our nature and even into the body, transforming the body. Of course, the body will eventually die. But we believe the body will be raised up in Christ as well in the last day. So 
this is from Paul, and uh, another kind of reference to this, this same process, theosis. Images of theosis. The first one is leavening dough. We find these images throughout the scriptures. Jesus said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. Leaven, of course, is a substance that is put into dough, causing fermentation to make the dough rise when baking bread. The parable of the leaven suggests that the kingdom of God has a permeating influence in the lives of individuals and communities. So that grace working in us, or the Holy Spirit working in us, permeates our being and begins to effect some changes in us in much the, way, the same way that yeast affects dough. We start with dough, and the wheat is still there, the, the oil is still there, the sugar is still there at the end of the process, but you have something very different. You have bread. Dough has been changed into bread because of this leavening process. Jesus also refers to growing plants. You recall, of course, the parable of the sower and the seed that falls on rocky ground, thorny ground, and fertile ground. But there's this other reference. He says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable can we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds, and yet... After it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Starts with a seed, and then there's a growth process that takes place if it's rooted in good ground, good soil here. So again, there's this slow, gentle, steady movement that is, that is uh, pushing from within almost, uh, the seed, and then the young plant to become this giant bush. New wine is one that Jesus uses as well. We recall the, uh, feast of, uh, the wedding feast at Canaan, his first miracle, where he changes water into wine. Now, that wasn't a fermentation process. That was a miracle. Okay. Then the Last Supper, where he takes bread and blesses it and gives it to his uh, apostles and says take and eat, this is my body, he, he then uh, lifts the cup, and they, uh, he says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be ruined. Rather, new wine must be poured into fresh wineskins. No one who has been drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is better. Jesus knew about good wines. You get that? If any of you ever drank new wine, wine that is like, uh, you know, just bottled, you know, uh, it's, it's okay, but it's, it's still got a little bite to it, maybe a little yeasty or something. As wine ages, it definitely gets better. So uh, wine symbolism is the one I'm going to pick up on. 
and I have brought a prop here on the table. This is new wine. This is wine that is just beginning to ferment. It's in its first week of fermentation. I am a, a winemaker, and this is white grape wine. It's, it would be okay to drink now. It would taste like a sort of a sparkly grape drink, almost like grape soda, with a yeast aftertaste. <clears throat> Not very good, but okay. Last night I brought a bottle of white Zinfandel to the movie, and some of, some some who are in here got to sip it. And you know, it's over a year old. It, it's much better, much smoother. You know, it's a good wine. But wine symbolism, I think, is is uh, is it tells us much about theosis, and so we're going to spend a little time with that. You begin with grape juice, although it doesn't have to be grape juice. You can ferment pretty much anything. You can ferment vegetables, you can ferment other fruit, but we'll use grape juice here. Grape juice is a good thing, isn't it? It's sweet, it's nutritious, delicious uh, to have with a, a meal. The problem is it doesn't last long. If you can refrigerate it, it'll last a few days, but in the old world, the uh, world before refrigeration, you know, after you squeeze the grapes and you got the juice, well, maybe the second or third day down the road it was starting to sour. Yeast transforms the grape juice into another liquid based on grape juice. The grape juice is still there, but it has been transformed. It, is, it lasts longer. It's now preserved. It's invigorating in a different kind of way. The transformation from grape juice to, uh, to wine is a process. It begins with what winemakers would call primary fermentation. Primary fermentation is uh, the period after which yeast is added to the grape juice. That's what we're in right here in the, uh, in the prop I brought. And so there's a lot of activity. If you go and you look at it, you'll see all the little bubbles and you'll see, see how cloudy the mixture is. It's, foaming, it's effervescent, um, you know, the yeast is happily eating away at all the sugar in, in, that, in that little jar of wine. There are other influences that need to be dealt with, souring by bacteria and wild yeasts. Before you add the yeast, there are certain chemicals that you, you put in and let sit for a day or so to prevent this. That was kind of hit and miss in the old world. They had to deal with spoiled wine quite a bit. So they didn't have cultivated yeast quite like we have now. They used the natural yeast that were found on the skins of the grapes to make their wine. But you didn't just have good yeast there. You had other critters as well. And some of them weren't conducing toward making good wine. <clears throat> you have what we call rackings that after a month or so, I'm going to pour this liquid off into another jar, same size, and, uh, and then put the, the stopper back on top, just to get that liquid off the sediment on the bottom so the sediment doesn't sour the wine, and that's called a racking. And then I'll let it sit for two or three months like that and pour it off again, and it should be nice and clear and ready to drink by then. So it takes at least two rackings to make a good wine. 
during which time sed uh, fermentation slows, uh, the sediment drops down to the bottom, and the wine clears out. And the racking sort of remind me of the dark nights of the soul that happen during the process of spiritual development, times when things are stirred up within us by the Holy Spirit, clouding our consciousness, perhaps with emotions or confusing thoughts, just wondering what God is up to, and yet God is effecting a kind of healing, bringing forth clarity. It takes patience and time to make good wine. It's not like bread. Bread, you can start, and four or five hours later, you can be eating it. There are some that, that take a little longer to rise, but usually from beginning to end, a, a bread process is maybe four or five hours at the most. You need new wineskins for new wine. And the reason is uh, wineskins in the old world, as many of you know, I'm sure, was made of leather. And old wineskins were tough and rigid and maybe even cracked. New wine is a little more effervescent. It might still have a slide, a small amount of fermentation going on. And so if you put new wine in an old wineskin, the pressure that is generated will burst the wineskin. So you need a new wineskin which will be more flexible. Now we use bottles which can stand the pressure, <laughs> but back then they didn't have that. New wine is sharp and yeasty and full of CO2. New wine that's not finished. Older wine, more flavorful, aromatic, and full-bodied. It's more transparent than new wine, new tra more transparent than grape juice even. So light can shine through uh, older wine in ways that can't shine through new wine. Again, Jesus, no one who has been drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is better. The spirit is like the yeast that engineers inner transformation. And Christ is like the wineskin or bottle that holds the new life within us. The old wineskin we might consider our old self-destructive attitudes, our old self-structure, which must be replaced by a new self-structure rooted in Christ. And this takes time. It begins with our old human nature, sometimes called our Adamic consciousness, A-D-A-M-I-C, end up with a new Christ consciousness, goes through stages of transformation. We have our dark night rackings, and through the process, we are becoming more and more transparent to the light as we go along. Here's a modern perspective. If Paul were alive today, he might speak of transformation in terms of a computer operating system upgrade. How many of you in here have, have had computer, undergone computer operating system upgrades? Or Android operating system upgrades on your phone, or iOS upgrades on your iPhones. Everyone has, right? You're still using Windows 3? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah, so, yes, that's right. Some people buy a computer and use whatever operating system is on it until the computer doesn't work anymore. But usually at some point, 
the, the computer, if you're connected to the internet, will tell you it's time to upgrade this thing, or else you'll discover that your new software doesn't work on your older computer or your older phone. So uh, at the heart of a computer, of course, there's the hardware, and the hardware is analogous to the physical body. But then there's this, this uh, software that's an operating system, and an operating system is what makes the software run. It interacts with the hardware as well. In a similar way that our human consciousness interacts with our body to express a wide range of intelligences and aptitudes. Now, what happens with an operating system upgrade is it enables more stability and a greater range of software functionality. You can do things on Mac OS X. That's on the right-hand side here. That's what I'm using on my little laptop. You can do things on Mac OS X that the 1984 Mac never dreamed of doing. And what you could do then, you can still do now, even better. Same for Windows 3.1 and its upgrades through the years to Windows 95 and 98 and da 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 da, da XP. Now I think we're at 8.1. Okay. An operating system upgrade usually preserves what was good and functional in a previous operating system. It writes code around it, sometimes replacing it. Operating system upgrades generally require more power and memory to run. Mac OS X won't run on older Macs. Eventually, you need to upgrade your hardware to take full advantage of the features of the new OS. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit gives us more power to live a Christian life and even affects transformations in our brain and our body. Again, Romans 8:11, a verse we touched on earlier. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now, those of you who are preachers, I think if you went out with this message and talked about the kingdom of God as like an operating system upgrade, hmm, I wonder how that would work. You would catch the attention of all the geeks in your congregation, or you might get them to start coming to church. So they're a hard group to reach. But I think the analogy holds up pretty well. What's happening through the theodic process is that the lover is becoming like the beloved. This is another way to understand it. That which or whom we love has the most influence in our lives. Quote from uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen. We become like that which we love. If we love what is base, we become base. But if we love what is noble, we become noble. That's pretty profound. Sort of like where your treasure is, there is your heart. But it's another twist on it. This is from Albert the Great and uh, his, his classical work, Cleaving to God. And by the way, what religious order was Albert the Great? Ah, I thought we'd hear that. Yes, he was. He was St. Thomas Aquinas' teacher, in fact. Now, this is pretty powerful. For the nature of love is of a unitive and transforming power which transforms the lover into what he loves. Say that again. 
Love is a transforming power which transforms the lover into what he loves, or alternatively, makes the lover one with the other. For love draws the lover out of himself, since love is the strongest death, and establishes him in the beloved, causing him to cleave closely to the beloved. For the soul is more where it loves than where it lives. Don't you like that? And so you think of Jesus' commandment to love the Lord with our whole heart, whole soul, whole mind, and whole strength. You can see the sense it makes. The soul is more where it loves than where it lives. Okay. Jesus on the cross is the lover, God, completely united with humanity in the depths of human abandonment and judgment. That God, as the lover, takes on the likeness of the beloved, becoming like the most despicable and rejected person in society, and that's who the crucified were looked upon, as people who had committed the most gruesome and despicable crimes. And God says, that's what I love. I look like that too. He stands in that place. Theosis is possible because of a direct infusion of supernatural life into human nature through the person of Christ. With the incarnation of the Word, Jesus, his death and glorious resurrection and ascension, he has connected the human and divine in a new way, something we reflected on more in our last session. <clears throat> we were already connected with God by virtue of the fact that God is giving us life moment by moment, life in existence. But this is a different kind of connection than we had before. Now, now God, in assuming human nature, introduces divinity into the human realm of existence in a way that it was not found before, enabling us to participate in the life of God in a new way. The gifts of the Spirit enable us to minister in the power of Christ, as Christ himself ministers. <clears throat> and this, there is a transformation in the Spirit that takes place all through life. Christ makes this new life available to us through faith. Faith is the door through which we enter into this new covenant between humanity and God in Christ. Baptism signifies the transference of the life of the soul from its foundation in the physical body to the risen, ascended body of Christ. So the soul has a new metaphysical foundation, which is what Paul means when he says, I live not I, but Christ. Christ is his life. Christ is our life. We are literally born again in Christ through faith and baptism. Of course, we still have a body, and it still has life, but Christ is our body, and we will be raised again because of our union with his risen body. So what do we mean by faith, then? A few comments, because uh, class five will be spent entirely on faith, but in the context of the present discussion, it might help to say a few things, because faith is at the heart of theosis. The theotic process proceeds through our openness in faith. There are 253 references to faith in the Bible. 
253, and 207 of them are in the New Testament. So there's a whole different emphasis on faith in the, uh, in the New Testament than there was in the Old. There are lots of nuances that we get in Scripture to what we mean by faith, but basically faith is our yes to God, yes to God's invitation to relationship and ministry. Faith is the exercising of the human spirit, we might say, to open the mind and will to God's revelation and guidance. So the dignity and powers of the human spirit are preserved rather than negated or overcome. You ever put yourself in God's position to say, what are we going to do about this human race on this little planet, one planet of perhaps billions and billions in the universe, to say, they're going downhill, you know? I don't want to unmake them. And the story about Noah, we read where God was sorry he had created the human race, but never says, well, I think I'll change my mind and zap them off the face of the earth. No. So God, God has uh, almost a, a predicament here to say, now, how do we help these people without uh, uh, unmaking them or overpowering them? Um, God has to honor, God chooses to honor the human nature that God has created with its freedom and intelligence by appealing to those. And faith is our response to that appeal, our yes to God. So it preserves the integrity of our human nature and establishes in us an openness to God and entrusting relationship with God and, and God's providential care for us. It moves the ego's center from focus on exercising its own powers to be acceptable in the culture to the heart or a, a place of interiority where our powers seem to come together to the throne where God lives and moves and has his being in us. In other words, the ego becomes a servant of God rather than, than the adversary of God. Faith entails belief. Belief calls upon our, our intellect, the powers of the mind, Faith calls upon surrender, the power of the will as well, to establish us in openness and relationship with God. Faith, we say, is a gift from God. We could not know God through faith unless God offered this kind of relationship to us. It is God who offers relationship. It is God who accepts our openness and surrender. And so that is the gift aspect. And yet, as you can see, we have, we have to respond. There is an act of faith that we are called upon to do. Let's look at theosis and the world religions and ask a question that many ask these days. Is transformation working only through the Christian religion? Are the benefits to the human race brought by Christ available only to Christians? Is Christian faith the only means to opening to God's love poured out through Jesus Christ? Is the Holy Spirit at work outside the Christian religion? Now these are obviously theological questions, 
that are answered differently across the spectrum in Christianity. But we'll take a brief look at three theological positions that kind of summarize the different, different stances. The first one uh, is often called exclusivist. And the exclusivist position is that only Christian faith and baptism in Christ saves and opens one to salvation and the theotic process. In other words, if you're not a Christian, not a born-again Christian, or a baptized Christian, or both, then you're going to hell. And there are many Christians who believe this. Biblical fundamentalists, this is fairly characteristic to those who are of that theological persuasion, many evangelicals, many individuals from various denominations. They believe that if you, if you profess faith in Christ and you're baptized, you are saved and you're going to heaven, but if you don't have this, then you're going to hell. And, of course, they can, they can quote many scriptures to back up their position. There is a, an inclusivist camp which says, uh, which says sure, exclusive, I mean, implicit, uh, faith and baptism do save, but we can understand faith in a broader sense, that there can be a consent to God's presence and action happening in the lives of people who don't know Christ but that Christ is present to them nonetheless. Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, for example, in Matthew 25, says nothing about whether you're baptized or have faith. It has, it has more to do with the kind of uh, charity you're expressing in your life, or you're a charitable person or not. The inclusivists believe that Christ's presence touches all, that with his resurrection and ascension, Jesus's presence is open and available to every creature in the universe, including every human being on the earth, that the spirit is at work in the hearts of all, that consenting to the nudgings of the spirit within, through faithfulness to one's conscience, the spirit working through our conscience, calls us to a kind of faith, call it implicit faith. Uh, in the tradition, also, the term baptism of desire was sometimes used, that, uh, especially for people, let's say, who had no knowledge of the gospel. And the presumption is that they're living in a kind of obedience to the Spirit, and if the gospel were presented to them, then they would respond to it. Uh, you find theologies of in inclusivity, uh, inclusivist position in Roman Catholicism is, is of, this, of this approach, and many of the mainline Christian denominations are as well, also of this approach. And within the uh, inclusivist position, there's one I put in parentheses called universalist. And universalist, not all inclusivists are universalists, okay? Inclusivists would say, it, even, even though the life of Christ is offered to all, whether they know his name or not, it's still possible to go to, have, to hell. You can reject God's offer of relationship and grace. And so uh, there are consequences for doing that, the ultimate one being total separation from God for all eternity, which is how we understand hell. The universalist says, uh-uh, no, God saved us in Christ period, whether you want it or not, uh, you're going to get it. And uh, 
And so that's a rather common position. Now, if we had time, you could reflect on the implications of these different positions here. What, what kind of a, uh, what difference does it make if one is a universalist or an exclusivist? Well, if you're a universalist, there's not much impetus in, let's say, proselytizing or evangelizing. You know, everybody's going to be saved, so fine. Um, well, third position here, pluralist, which says uh, oh, Christianity is just one, one way to God. There are many ways to God. Jesus isn't necessary. The inclusivist and the exclusivist are saying Jesus is absolutely necessary. No one comes to, to the Father except through him. He is our lifeline to God. The pluralist is saying, no, 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 no. That's just one way. God spoke through this culture in this way. <clears throat> in India, God, God used Krishna, Buddha, and other cultures. God has raised up different religious leaders, and they can all be saved by following those leaders. So that's the pluralist position. So looking at theosis in, let's say, a global sense rather than just the, uh, in our individual lives, that the human race because of Jesus has swallowed a gospel pill, you might say. A yeast has been introduced into the uh, human race, into the creation that uh, is, is effecting this transformation, this ongoing transformation. Divine life fermenting, permeating through. As the human race continues to come together more and more through communication, immigration, intereconomics, we see evidence of this transformation in the growing consensus on human rights that we find throughout the world, a growing consensus on concern for the environment, which we all share. This is, this is one of the common factors that we all live on Earth, and so the welfare of Earth is, a, is of concern for all of us. It's as though human individuals are like, we're all like yeast cells, in the creation. Are we wild and sinful or are we theotic yeast cells? We're more one than the other. Gospel calls us to be stewards of the planet and its ongoing development, agents of Christ's ongoing work for transformation. In a sense then, every time one of us draws closer to God, the whole human race benefits in some manner, and so does the planet. This is the affirmation of the contemplative vocation. Many times uh, directees who just, uh, let's say, aren't for health reasons very active in social justice work, you know, will say, I just can't get out there and do, do the things I used to. It's like, well, you can still pray, and our prayer is a service to the human race. That, that people who are people of prayer are contributing to the transformation of the human race just as surely as people who are out in the trenches doing the hard work, cleaning up Ebola mess, and so forth. We are all called to be faithful to the place that God has planted us.